Luke chapter 17, I'll be reading verses 5 through 10. Luke 17, 5 through 10. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does He thanked the servant because he did what was commanded. So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my my simple but profound plea is that you use me to say, re-say, turn over and look at the nuances of your intention when you spoke these words and your servant Luke is recorded for us. And that in the midst of that, not only will your spirit cause our minds to be alive, to see the words and the phrases and the clauses and the sentences, but feel and be moved and be changed by your spirit to obey, to love what we see. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. For those who take the Bible seriously, who have embraced Jesus, who have been born again, who are followers of Jesus, they will often feel overwhelmed with the difficulty of Jesus' commands. I mean, for example, and we've seen these in Luke, but I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Or, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, here in our text in Luke 17, the disciples feel overwhelmed with Jesus' demands that we saw last week in verses 1 through 4. Remember where he told his disciples, and he's telling us, watch your life and your words so that you do not cause another disciple to stumble and to turn away from me. And he's laid on all of his disciples the responsibility to confront or to rebuke another brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin. And then he says, for those who sin against you, and it hurts, and they come and repent, he says, you must forgive them. No matter how often this cycle of their sinning against you in repenting goes. And so, the disciples feel the weight of this difficulty. And they respond in verse 5. 
the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith! They felt the natural human impossibility of this demand. And so they desperately said, Jesus, you've got to help us. And they said, our faith towards you. Somehow they understood these commands at root to be about their vertical relationship with God. Somehow the demand to forgive that person who has so harmed you, they saw as a relationship of dependence on you must be increased to do this. Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus' answer here is not, oh, okay, okay, but until I do choose to increase your faith, you're not obligated to my commands that I just gave you. Go ahead and continue to be unforgiving and bitter and show ill will towards your brother or sister in Christ until I increase your faith. It's not what he says. And neither is his answer, oh, okay, I will zap you in a moment and increase your faith. But Jesus' answer here shifts the focus from the quantity of faith to the reality or the presence of faith in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, a tiny, tiny, tiny little seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He's saying faith, real faith. Genuine faith. A little bit of genuine faith flowing from a heart that has been born again by the Holy Spirit can accomplish amazing things in your life. Even a little trust in me that's genuine responds to my commands. See, the problem is it's the total absence of any faith at that moment that does not respond to Jesus' commands. The metaphor that Jesus uses here is saying to all Christians that little seed of faith that I've planted in you can pull up the roots of this tree and throw it 20 miles away into the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, what's going on? This, this, is what, this is what I think is happening in the structure in these first 10 verses of Luke. Jesus responds to their request. Increase their faith. And He's saying, don't wait around for your faith to be increased. Hear my word. And trust me. And act. You belong to me. Quit worrying about how great your faith is. And when I say forgive, forgive. That's what I think he's doing. I want you to listen for a moment. Somewhat of a parallel passage. At another time, Jesus loved these kinds of illustrations. And so that we can see again in Mark chapter 11. The connection between faith and this really difficult thing at times, forgiving a brother or a sister. Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 22, Jesus says, Have faith in God. I say to you, whoever says to and there's no tree there. He sees a mountain. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for 
Him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. It will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So he says, faith can move mountains like bitterness and unforgiveness. It's all about the power of this miracle called faith that the Holy Spirit produces in new birth when you hear the gospel and it's in you. You've got a tiny little seed. He says, now, when you stand praying, bitterness rises toward him, her, before God, forgive if you have anything against anyone. The faith that can move mountains is the power to forgive. Now, let's go back to Luke. Let's just feel the flow of this dialogue between Jesus and His own, His disciples, not the world at this moment. Jesus looks at His disciples, and through Him, them, He looks at us, and He says, forgive that fellow believer who has wronged you, and then come to you and repented. Let it go. I hear it. Their response, increase our faith then. Guys, it's not about how great you are. It's not about how great and huge your faith is. It's about the faithfulness of God whom you trust. You either have faith at this moment to trust me, or you don't. When we're walking by faith, when we're trusting and battling against unbelief in the Christian life, we will forgive, is the point. The person who is trusting in God at the moment is entrusting everything into God's sovereign hands so that he can rest. So, so that she could be at peace and say, you know what? God is perfectly just. He told me to trust Him. And if I do, I lay my head down in peace and obey. Let that go. That's the essence of this seed, little teeny mustard seed of faith in every believer. If, and we do, are having trouble, because the Christian life is a battle, a fight of faith. I have fought the fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. I'm pressing in. It is a battle. So therefore, there are struggles to obey with a heart of faith. Struggles to forgive. What we need is to respond in faith. In other words, to believe in God's sovereign control. To believe He's not taking a nap. And when He gave this command, He really did not understand how the person would sin against you that makes it so hard to forgive. He knows everything. And He tells you, forgive. In other words, as we saw last week, just briefly, remember, we turned there for a while, it is to trust what he says in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because it's written, and here's the promise, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so, we either trust him 
at that moment, or we don't. So, so how does this work? How does this relationship between walking in a heart of trust towards God through Jesus, related to how we deal with each other and get rid of bitterness and or give absolution to the person who has asked it from us because they sinned against us, how does it work? It's something like this. Just take the context here of verse 4. Someone has sinned against you and thus hurt you deeply. The wound goes emotionally deep. And emotions can be overwhelming and really hard to deal with. The person asks you, please forgive me. And it feels like the dentist just hit a nerve in your tooth that shot the pain deep throughout your head. You can taste the bile of the bitterness of your hardness of heart toward that person. The roots of the mulberry tree of bitterness go really deep in your heart. Okay. Here's the question. How much faith do you need to pull that mulberry tree out of the ground and have it cast into the sea? Maybe the answer is as much faith as you need to believe that Jesus on the cross bore all your sins. On the cross, put away God's just wrath against you and has forgiven you of every sin against Him. And so that we could pray then as believers, Lord, I'm struggling right now with all these emotions. How do I forgive this person? Every time I think about it, I just feel anger. Help me right now be in touch with the reality of the cross for me. That you have put that sin which was so deserving of an eternal damnation, you have taken that out of the way me. So draw close to me by your Spirit and uproot this heart of bitterness and unforgiveness. Help me trust your Word. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Help my unbelief. And then you feel it. Lord, this is a brother or a sister in Christ. Who in the world am I to belittle Jesus' cross? By holding sin now against them that you have poured out your full vengeance on in Jesus Christ. You were on the cross, Lord, and said, it is finished. Help me not little your cross Lord Jesus every believer every genuine Christian has enough faith to have faith in God's promise and so trust him and by the way when you do trust Him, and you see a mulberry tree pulled out of the ground and thrown into the sea, because I believe, look at that, amazing that I've forgiven that person, this person, or the other person. Don't start beating your chest as if you're something great or something special. Wow! I'm a man of faith! It is God the trustworthy one who is great. 
You just happen to, by His grace, you just happen to do what you are supposed to do. Trust Him. That's what you did. You don't get the glory. God gets the glory. And that's what Jesus goes on to illustrate in verses 7 through 10. Will you... Any one of you who has a servant, a doulos, a slave in the economy there, plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come home in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Okay, right now everyone's kind of giggling and laughing because they know how silly that is, Jesus. Of course not. Will he not rather say to him, the servant, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Obviously not. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, Christian, say, we are unworthy. Servants, we have only done what was our duty. You know, a few weeks ago I heard a national talk radio host refer to a particular pastor as a great man of faith, a really godly man. Who gets the glory? in a statement like that. The man. Now, if he is a man of faith and battles his heart of unbelief every day and is pursuing holiness, which I have no reason to doubt that that person does, then if he would have heard that about him, he would have cringed at such words. And his wife would have probably laughed. Okay, good, he left. See, they're, they're, I'm going to be careful with that. You've got to hear the word sense. <laughs> there is a sense that I feel in this text There's a, of what Jesus is doing and the way he responds. There is a sense in which there's no such thing as great faith. Give me the Abraham text and all that I know. We can deal out with those in home group. But there's a sense in what's going on here. It's not about great faith. There's only faith right now in the moment, or there's not. Jesus increased our faith. Look, guys, if you had any faith, okay, let me see. You know, yeah, we all think that the mustard seed is this really, really tiny thing we refer to for smallness. Okay, if you just have that much faith, it's amazing what will happen in your life, in your heart, as you trust me. Trees get thrown into oceans with a smidgen of trusting me. Because there is no being in existence who is as trustworthy is God. See, if we trust Him and God acts, things change in our lives, you overcome a besetting sin, you do this extraordinarily impossible thing without God called forgiving a person. It is no credit to our greatness. The issue is not great faith, disciples. The issue is a great God who can throw that mulberry tree in the ocean with just a tiny, tiny bit of faith to trust Him. Jesus in this text is shouting down the corridors of church history. Your faith in God gets no glory.
But genuine faith in Him produces obedience to Him and gives all the glory to God. When your faith obeys Him, which that is the life of a Christian, that's happening in the life of believers, and when your faith obeys Him, some well-meaning, deceived person starts to praise you. Like, you're just a terrific person. You, you walk away and you say before God and to yourself, I am an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. See, to be praised by others for trusting God, it's like being praised for choosing steak, potatoes, and cheesecake at the buffet instead of live crawling worms to eat. Someone says, you're amazing! Look what you did! You, you chose the steak! You're unbelievable what a person you are. And you just think, what are you talking about? It's for my good! I enjoy that! And if that's not Christ in the Gospel, you might not be a Christian. See, given these huge requirements in Luke chapter 17, like, do not cause your brother to stumble. Watch your life. Do the hard thing when you need to. The person's in unrepentant sin. Rebuke them. Oh, that person is so grieved, but they've come to you and said, please forgive me. Jesus says, you must forgive them. On and on and on and on. And the thing that is connected to all of that activity in your obedience is called faith. See, given those huge requirements, Jesus seems to be very aware that some people may assume that somehow they are great for their obedience. That somehow they deserve kudos because they obey Jesus, their great Savior. And so Jesus explodes this thinking with this first century illustration he compares Christians. He compares his disciples with a doulos, Greek word for a slave. Now, if he were living today in our economy, he would use employees working for a large company or for a small mom and pop business and say, that's your duty. That's what you're there for. You have a, a job. That's what he would do as he says in verse 7. Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. <laughs> no. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you will eat and drink. So he gives him this analogy. The servant's been working hard all day out in the field. He's tired. He comes home. But his work isn't done. He's got the responsibility to prepare dinner. It's his job. It's his duty. And Jesus' point to every one of his disciples is do everything the Master says. Obey Him. Period. Slaves take orders. They don't give orders. They're not like many loose evangelicals who go up to the buffet of Jesus' commands and say, oh, yeah, I, I like, okay, I like that one. Ooh, no, I don't like these ones over here. Oh, but And these ones? No, that's really against my natural disposition. But, but, but he commanded, no, no, we're under, we're under grace, brother, not law. The slave has a sense of duty. He is a servant with responsibilities to his master. And thus, our focus cannot be on how I feel. 
This slave was working hard all day and he's dirty and he doesn't come bouncing in the door just, I can't wait to work some more. It's probably not how he feels. Probably felt like heating up water and taking a warm bath and having someone else serve him a nice meal. But he is called to a particular duty as a slave. He didn't go by how he felt. And Christians, this is the analogy, have duty. And one of the duties often is when our feelings are against the commands of Christ, say these words. So, what? But I don't feel like forgiving. He didn't ask you, slave. He told you your duty. Act. Act in obedience of faith. Don't add obedience to your faith. Faith means trust. And if Jesus says, a train's coming, you're standing on the track, jump off. If you don't believe Him, you'll just stand there and be squashed. If you believe His command, that if you jump off, then you will be saved from the train, you will obey. That's how they're always connected. And then Jesus, in the text, asks a rhetorical question that gets to the core of his point. Verse 9. Got all this? The slave does it. Does he, the master, thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now the expected answer is obviously, of course he does not thank him. There's no, oh, thank you. I can't believe you served me dinner tonight. Unbelievable. Let me bow down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No. The point of the text is the slave simply did his duty. Served dinner. Forgave that person preached that sermon gave that money showed hospitality for the gospel's sake visited the lonely the slave doesn't look for look at me Awesome. Someone thanked me. You simply did your duty. God owes us nothing. He is the greatest master in existence to be attached to is a slave because He gives us all things. To enjoy. Jesus knows the propensity of our hearts toward pride. That we are, because He has left us for this time being until the resurrection, now in this mortal life with the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us and with sin still with us. And so He knows our propensity to get puffed up when we do our duty. Especially when it was really difficult. Like to forgive that person. Look at me! Remember the text from last week? I forgave that person seven times yesterday. Woohoo! And so in verse 10, Jesus now explicitly applies this little story. 
to Christians. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. God in Jesus Christ. He is the treasure in the field. He is the fountain of eternal joy. Here's here's His initial command that rings through eternity. Here's the command. Come unto Me and drink and find life. Now, when we come and obey Him and do our duty and do that, do not say, hey, look what I did for you, God. Can I get a thank you? Please, thank you're ungrateful. You commanded me to come and find life in you. And you didn't thank me? It would be silly, wouldn't it? And it would be utterly arrogant and legalistic to want him to. But instead he says, hey, Joe, I sent my son to become a human being in order to suffer for your sins and to satisfy my justice on your behalf. And I raised Him from the dead to bring the Gospel to you so that I would forgive all your sins forever and deliver you from an eternal damnation. So, Joe, follow me. Okay, here we go. Good. Okay, I know. I'm right there. I'm sovereign too over that. You know that? Go ahead. Forgive Him. Okay, now. Study my Word well. Be faithful. Teach well. Give that money. Go visit that person. Follow me. My commands are the pathway for your real joy. Okay, Lord, this last week, I followed you. You really worked with me today. Can I please get a thank you? Could you get someone else to recognize that? And praise me. God would say, Son, I own you. I own you in order to do good for you now and for all eternity. Do you believe me? And burn out this remaining pride and understand that your duty to trust me is for your good. I don't command you for me. I command you for your happiness. There is no good work, there is no service that you have, are, or will ever do in obedience to me that I did not cause and produce by my grace in you. For from me and through me and back unto me are all things to me be all the glory Never, my servants. Do you remember how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians? Church, because they're dealing with this problem of arrogance and pride. (laughs) Do you see how I played the guitar? Or preached? Or served? 
or how hospitable I am. See my gifts? When Paul says, quote, What do you have that you did not receive? It means that's a gift. If then you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, one response on our part is appropriate. Of course, I'll do my duty. Who else has the words of life but you, my Master who purchased me and bought me? I am an unworthy servant. I have only done what is my duty. Being saved by grace unto a life of obedience of faith is a life of grateful humility. I'm an unworthy servant. Jesus in this text exposes the depth of our pride. At the root of our pride, every one of us, it's there and it's got to be battled, is that disposition that feels I need and I deserve to be recognized a little bit more. It wants to feel superior to others. This sin is so subtle that even when it hears a sermon like this, I want to be known as the person who doesn't boast, doesn't seek to boast, but craves people to recognize I'm that person who doesn't boast. It is so subtle. See, faith, saving faith, the life of faith, It sees God's commands like a desperately sick patient sees his doctor's commands as the ticket to health. Now, think about it. Wouldn't it be silly? (laughs) Someone says, you won't believe it how great I am. For the last three weeks, I took all my medications precisely as my doctor commanded me. I'm sitting by the phone waiting for him to call me and to thank me. That's how ridiculous it is for any Christian, for anything they ever do in service. To have in the back of their mind, why doesn't God thank me? We do say other things quietly sometimes. And this is the thanks I get? See, the danger in religion, and Jesus warned about this in Matthew 23, 5, is this is how he said it. They, Pharisees and scribes, Do all these deeds in order to be seen by men, others. But Jesus is calling His church, He's calling His disciples to humility in our service, in our obedience. And humility is this disposition of joy in even doing the lowly tasks of life. It's that disposition, no matter what it is, cleaning a toilet, giving an ear to that lonely soul. Okay, put 10,000 other huge recognizable things or things that are never recognized. But it's a joyful disposition because it's the disposition that says, I'm serving you, my Master. I can't believe that you saved me. I can't believe and I'm not going to hell, but I am going to enjoy your glory forever as a gift. You want me to do what? Oh, no problem. 
That's what we are to be striving for. Remember Jesus said it in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, blessed, in other words, are those who do not find any merit or things they deserve when, when they really get honest and they look down inside their own heart and their own spirit. Blessed are those kinds of people. For theirs is the kingdom of God. That disposition is the opposite of what Jesus will say in the next chapter of Luke. They are those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You don't want to be there. But no, the poor in spirit are those who recognize I deserve nothing. I have done nothing to commend myself to God. But they happily take their place as grateful, unworthy servants. So, every, every person who is here, and if you have been brought safely to Jesus, if you have been born again, you've come to saving faith, He's put you into His sheepfold, every one of us ought to regularly sit down in a quiet place alone with God and hear Him say, so you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, I am an unworthy servant. I have only done what was my duty? Because that duty is God's grace. And the way Jesus puts it in this text is His grace to continue to destroy our Pride. The remnants and the remains of that deceptive, arrogant pride. Jesus looks at each of us in the eye and He says, no degree of obedience to Me that is in your life. No giftedness that I have gifted you with and I use in you ever puts God into your debt. I'm the master who has delivered you from eternal incarceration. I am the treasure in the field. And so, you can just put your name there. If from this day on, Jesus says, by the power of my Holy Spirit, you go on living in, and this is an impossibility, but you get the point, you go on living in perfect obedience to my commands. Then you will say, and mean it, and know it, I am an unworthy servant. I in no way by anything you have ever accomplished in me have ever put you, Lord Jesus, you, my Holy Father, into my debt. I have never performed an action that somehow met a need of yours to which you now ought to recompense me. It's that conviction that is the root of humility. The conviction that you deserve nothing. Another way to say it is understand the gospel. Okay, I could have said that right. We would have been done 45 minutes ago. 
So Jesus is saying to us, go and serve others. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do good to those who sin against you, who harm you, who curse you. Lose your life in order that you may find it. Give generously of your resources and forgive that brother, that sister who has sinned against you. All those commands are mercy to you. They are the doctor's prescription, the doctor's commands for the health of your soul and of your joy now and for all eternity. And so we say, what a Savior. You alone have the words and the commands of life. You're the Master. Your command because of Christ and through the cross. Yes, You have truly redeemed me. And I believe You, Jesus, when You say come unto You and follow You and take up my cross and suffer for You. It's such a short time. I trust You that You mean it. And so where else shall I go? Only You have the words and the commands in the directions of life. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, none of what You laid out in this text will ever, to any degree, be accomplished in any of our lives unless it is You who are working by the Spirit to produce it. And so it is into Your hands we commit our lives and beg of You. Change my heart. Overcome our sin by the presence and the power and the refreshing of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God working to the glory of your name to the satisfaction of our hearts and to the good of those 